Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Airways Podcast, Season 4, Episode 13. I'm Halloween Villemsar, your host, joined by aviation analyst Rohan Anand. And we have a special guest uh, with us today, uh, tonight, actually, David H. Stringer, history editor at Airways Magazine and a member of the editorial board at the Aviation Historian. Uh, this is a British publication. His airline career spans 32 years with the... Uh, Many airlines, we'll talk about those, but I can include Southern Airways, Republic Airlines, and Northwest. And he also has a book, America's Local Service Airlines. We can certainly talk about that book, which is, a, uh, let me read this, a definite history of the remarkable companies that brought scheduled air service to hundreds of small cities throughout the U.S. after World War II. That's, that sounds dope. Is it available on Audible? No, unfortunately, it's uh, it, uh, yeah. Well, can't like with AI and stuff, they do that like now. I would prefer David's voice. At any rate, congratulations. That is super cool. Um, where, where can we find this book? Uh, the book was actually published in 2016. You can find it on Amazon, you can find it uh, at Barnes and Noble. Yeah. Uh, you'd have to order it through Barnes and Noble, of course. You're not going to find it at their brick, brick and mortar stores, but um, it is kind of a cool book because uh, it, it tells you what our airline system was like in the United States. In some ways, how much better it was for certain communities um, back in the day. But uh, we'll talk more about that later anyway. For sure. Also, we can talk a little bit about uh, what you're doing at Airways right now. I think Airways is going to publish uh, a book that compiles stories that you have written for the magazine. Uh, so I know that I can't say too much. I know they're going to be several volumes, yeah. but I know that the first one is about to be finished. So I think that we can start off before we get into David's career and what he's doing, uh, discuss a little bit about this week's uh, Dubai Air Show and some of the highlights. I know that Rohan, you have some, some comments uh, on that. So I'd like to start by saying uh, the airlines that start with the letter E, I think were some pretty big uh, winners in this. Um, and in all sincerity, maybe that kind of goes back to the ethos of the Dubai Air Show, where really there's like a place that's not Paris, that's not Farnborough, rather someplace that allows the Middle Eastern airlines and the Northern African airlines to kind of take the stage, especially with Boeing and with Airbus, uh, and with the continued uh, success of aviation in the Middle East, and also the ever-expanding realm of possibilities, how the checkbooks can come out. <clears throat> and it's not just for uh, the regional airlines, uh, for example, not just for um, Etihad and uh, Emirates and Fly Dubai and Royal Emirates and Jordanian and uh, Emirates, we're rather, you know, even the Air Baltics of the world, right? So you got Air Baltics making orders. So Air Baltics has also, you know, formulated partnerships with uh, the uh, with with the Gulf carriers in the past, and has also, uh, you know, there's some orders that will come in from your low cost carriers from time to time, like Wizz Air, right? That has connections with the um, Middle East. That also includes. <laughs> Riyadh International Airlines, or RIA, right? That's uh, now in the mix. So, like I said, this is basically the Middle Eastern, North African show um, with all of those. You know, the letters that start with E, the letters that start with R. Um, and just, it's very, very uh, exciting, I think. You know, just being honest with you, the um, aerospace component is also part of this, where Emirati astronauts are meeting the UAE aerobatic team. You know, how much is press? But also, you know, there's that Middle Eastern sort of um, showcasing, right, of the talent, the art, to the representation of local um, investments uh, that the country has made into its modernization efforts uh, over the years, while also taking advantage of its location. Um, one can argue right now that, you know, with all the tension going on in the Middle East, um, you know, that, you know, as, as, as sad as that is, um, it is going to shift a lot of the attention onto the balance of, you know, what is going on in other parts of the Arab world. And this includes, you know, maintaining the importance of aerospace, right, and connectivity, um, you know, getting people from place to place, right? So here you have this interesting confluence of, like, modern 
um, global events and also an air show where post COVID post, uh, you know, the, uh, interesting dynamics of what's going on in European aviation and in us aviation here out in the middle East, um, you know, people want to be cool as a cucumber. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And it's interesting because uh, at the Paris uh, air show, Airbus was the winner, but the tables turned here. Boeing secured just the first day 271 aircraft units uh, from six different carriers So and lesser. So it's interesting that Boeing, you know, had a big win the first day. And why do you think that is? The Max, you know, and the Dreamliners are really good planes. Uh, but what do you think, David? Guys, when you start talking about history, I'll jump in. It's <laughs> right. Very early. It's, uh, you know, the, the aircraft orders now, are just, it's, they're amazing. They're flabbergasted. And the amounts of money they're spent. And of course, it's all Airbus and Boeing products. But just for Airbus, I think uh, the second day was big for them, right? Mm-hmm. With, with the A350s. But it was Boeing all the way. Here's, here's my thought. Um, it, there's, there's still an important thing to remember about the A versus B, you know, uh, situation with Boeing and Airbus is that their Airbus is basically able to sell the A350, the A330, the A320 family, and the A220 family. Boeing just has three, relatively speaking, the 777s and the 777X when it ever comes out, Boeing 787s in that family. And then the 737, there's still that gap between the 737 and the 787. And whether that will come to bite them, who knows? But there's still that looming in the background, right? So personally, I believe that as time goes on as well, the good news is, is that the airlines can benefit because they can get a blend of both, right? You know, where you have some 737 maxes, you have some... Um, Airbus 320s, and then you may have some 787s and call it a day. Or um, you might have some Airbuses that, you know, span all the way up to the A330. But then for other range missions, you rely on the um, 737 MAX. Like there's just all sorts of combinations and permutations. And it's also indicative of just post-COVID times in which airlines, you know, from these regions have had time to consider, you know, how they want to modernize their fleets. Like flag carriers now are making money again, right? It's crazy. We've talked about this on this podcast about how some of these flag carriers from around the world that were previously just like constantly bleeding money, constantly try to find, you know, new ways to get past the bureaucracy to actually be able to run airlines. Well, they're the ones that are kind of doing well now, right? So they do want to modernize. They do want to also, um, you know, there is head Riyadh International Airlines that is also it's going to be growing. It's going to be going fast. And Qatar Airways, you know, is going through a leadership transition, right? So, you know, Qatar Airways noticeably absent from a lot of kind of things that are happening. You know, instead, you got the intention on Egypt Air, onto Royal Jordanian. Emirates was always there, you know. The 787 on Emirates will be a big deal because um, it'll be the first thing to join its fleet since it retired the Airbuses. Um, you know, Turkish is in the mix. Air Baltic is in the mix. Not coincident until that code sharing between Delta and Air Baltic became a thing. Then you had um, Egypt Air. You had uh, the Etihad sort of announcing it's dropping Air Serbia, while Air Serbia is just kind of like trying to figure out what it wants. Um, Ethiopian got into the mix with 787s and Maxes. And it's crazy to think that Ethiopian is one of the first operators of the 787s. Same with Royal Jordanian. And those products are dated. They, they want to be able to order... And, and configure the all-aisle access for their uh, aircraft because Royal Jordanian has a significant hub uh, kind of operation between long-haul markets and very um, near-right points into the Levant. And then Ethiopian, in a similar vein, kind of does that with uh, east side of Africa and then even parts into Asia, right? So there you go. Just right there, you learn about the... Um, the stars in there. And and so I think it's also, like I said, an interesting confluence post-COVID with this happening. Um, I suppose, I, I don't know which to choose, which is the most shocking or the least shocking uh, order from this. I, I want to put my money on, you know, airlines like Royal Air Maroc and Royal Jordanian and, uh, you know, that kind of, you know, crowd because, you know, they're smaller. Um, they're very interesting. 
they're in, like I said, you know, the kind of parts of the world where they have to kind of take a gamble on geopolitical situations just to be able to sh- connect people to those parts of the world. Um, and, you know, they want to be able to fly a safe fleet, right? And then I guess the backdrop against all of which, um, you know, we talk about what's not happening in the commercial airspace alone, but, you know, the other things where there are some exhibitors, right? There's a lot of people that come to this, 1,400 exhibitors from 95 countries in aerospace and space and defense. And, you know, it's bigger than last year, right? Uh, airlines are getting back together to, to make, make orders. This is what I think. As far as the 737-8, these airlines, they want to grow their fleets. They don't want to renew them, right? It's not, it's not about renewing. It's about just, you know, having a fleet that can do what you're just saying, which is just expanding in the region and, and even beyond. And Boeing, I don't know if Boeing sweetened the deals because the bad luck for the 737-8 is big. The Dash 9, maybe it's 4% of the bad luck. Whereas the dash eight, the seven thirteen dash eight is forty four percent. So uh, it's about that. It's about for me. It's about growing the fleet for the next ten twenty years. You know, they don't have that. They need that. Well, and it has to be done because we've learned along the way that these might not materialize for a long, long time. Yeah, and um, you know, planning the product and planning the decision, especially a product that's going to be able to last. In relevance, you know, until, you know, 20, I guess 30, oh my gosh, that sounds so um, <laughs> scary to say, but really they're potentially their order could come then, who knows, right? Um, hopefully, you know, the supply chain issues with life, you know, post-pandemic continues to maybe improve bit by bit, but for, for sure. And, and, and so, you know, then comes the question I posed earlier about the gap between the 737 and something smaller than it and something larger than it um, that connects the dots in the way that Airbus has, right? With Airbus having the A330 family, the A220 family, and then the A320neo kind of sandwiched neatly in the middle. Mm-hmm. And then you have Embraer, right? Embraer's still around. Embraer's still around. They brought the Tiger... What was Embraer's movements in 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 Dubai like? Uh, not much. Um, but I do want to ask and, and include David in this question because it says it is a growing. You know, Africa's growing, and the Middle East is seeing this type of movement. Do you see any similarities from the deregulation in the United States when just you know a bunch of airlines started popping up? I don't know if this is a pertinent question. I think it's very pertinent. It's very good too. It's it's um and it's true. It's you know, we all know about deregulation knockouts. How everybody wanted to get in the airline business after deregulation, and oh, you know, I I can run an airline. I can make money, but um, mm. so many of them couldn't and didn't. But what fascinates me is the two guys have your fingers on the pulse of the industry today. You really know what's going on. I mean, you know all about the orders in Dubai and which carrier bought which type of aircraft. And it's seriously, my, my, my field of expertise is looking backwards. It's the past. It's kind of like, I spent my last years working aboard A330s and A320s, but you know, my, my, my passion is more with back when we had Douglas and Lockheed and, and, and Boeing and Martin and all the other different, uh, choices of aircraft available. But uh, it's fascinating to listen to you guys talk about Dubai though. Yeah. If we never were here. Oh, they would be, you know, I would have to like stop them. Well, we, know. we, we are here for that, right? I have a historical aircraft, uh, database of knowledge myself. Now this is largely from like the late 1970s forward. So the jet age mostly, that yeah. is kind of the most familiar I grew up, um, just kind of going back to that period. Um, so, you know, for those that like have gone into the meta detail of any generation, I have such a pause for you. But also, David, I would argue I'm not as meta on the future forward aircraft as as mu- as some people are because aircraft is aircraft deliveries are lengthy unless they you know are something swift like Malaysia Airlines do- donating an A350 to an airline or taking one up from another one or you know Singapore Airlines giving some to Air India and, and Etihad giving them to Air. This is what happens like you know the joint ventures, the alliances, mm-hmm. that stuff's all on beats. 
it, I mean, it truly can dictate the short pipeline and the large pipeline. Plus, you know, mergers, right? If this fly Dubai situation is any indication, maybe Emirates wants access to this Air 77s earlier, right? And it just kind of shows the drama and the negotiation between the mega airlines, oftentimes the Middle East or but even Europe, uh, and the major manufacturers. It's a lot of that negotiation politic and, and stuff that has to happen. It's also for show, right? And then orders change, drama ensues. And, and it's not just the orders, too. It's also the engines, right? The engines that come from a different manufacturer. The engines can be problematic. The engines can be defective on multiple types of the that's the other risk you take, right? So yeah. if it's going to take out your Embraer fleet or instantane there versus if it's going to wipe out your, um, you know, two of your Airbus narrow body fleets, right? Or, you know, the kind of evolution of automation and creating safe airlines that are operated by machinery that assemble parts and components rather than like actual uh, human labor, right? And so how that's going to continue to play into the narrative and, you know, how data and analytics can be utilized to make sure that, you know, jobs are protected, unions are protected on many sides of the coin, and also that these airlines can continue to innovate, fail a little bit, or not airlines, but manufacturers. Come it's just it's just part of the freaking journey of flight, right? Getting a plane up in the air. There's just always going to be startup problems, yeah. startup costs, startup issues. No plane has ever flown successfully in the past few years that has like not in the very start of the family right and that's what's happening with the triple seven x right you know 27 years later the drama surrounding the first triple seven is certainly happening it's interesting what you're saying you know in the sense that it's not an easy task and this is obviously we have to bow our heads to the engineers who make these aircraft Fly, but what's interesting? Hundred percent, hundred percent. You know, and no, and, and I think we wrote an article about the top jobs that don't require you to fly in aviation, and I think we put engineer like in, I don't know next to last, and we got grilled because that should have been first uh, non-flying career in aviation. So if it is true, um, so it, so if, thinking about that, I want to like circle back to 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 David's career and just maybe talk about the aircraft that you flown. You did fly some interesting equipment. Yes. Uh, DC, DC three. Um, I didn't, I didn't work aboard a DC three. I, I, I did, I did take my first flight aboard a DC three when I was a kid. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. But, uh, so my airline career started in 1976. I got hired by Southern airways. Okay. Um, yeah. And, uh, at the time, I was too tall for, for most airlines. You know, they... How are you? Six four on a good day, six three, six okay. three. Yeah, but, but uh, almost every airline had a six-foot maximum back then. They also had a minimum, too. You know, I think the gals could be, like, no shorter than five, two, or whatever. So I fly with a lot of different airlines. Taking the story back a little bit, I, uh, when I graduated from... When I got my degree from the University of Detroit, mm -hmm. uh, I went back to New Orleans, which is my hometown, and... At the time, I wanted to work for an airline. This is 1974, and um, we were still at the repercussions of the uh, the oil embargo, the fuel shortage. Every airline had furloughed people at the time, so nobody was hiring. There were no new hires because all the airlines were, of course, going to rehire people they had furloughed before they hired anybody new. So the next best thing is I got a job uh, with a hotel that was run by an airline. It was called Braniff Place, New Orleans. And back in the 70s, a lot of airlines, a lot of major airlines tried to, um, well, they did. They hooked up with hotel chains. Pan Am had the Intercontinental chain. Uh, United had Weston chain, the Weston hotels. American had a series of hotels called Americana hotels for a while. And Braniff, uh, they would go in and they wouldn't buy the hotels. They would, the hotels were owned by somebody else, but they'd manage them. They'd, they'd, they'd go in and put a lot of money into upgrading the hotels and redoing them and, and then put their name on it. And this was called Braniff Place, New Orleans. So that was my first job out of college. I started on the front desk and became reservations manager of the hotel eventually. But we used to put up crews overnight at Braniff Place from both National Airlines and Braniff. And at the time, the airlines had just recently started hiring men as flight attendants again. So, you know, like every fourth or fifth night when the crews would check in, there'd be a guy on board. And so I got to talk with these guys and I was like, oh my God, you know, 
I had always thought, you know, I'm going to go into airline management. That's going to be my career. You know, I'm going to be, you know, start out in schedule planning, you know, and wind up being a CEO or something. You know, I, I, talking to these guys and seeing this, I thought, oh my God, that's the career. That, that's something to do for a few years. You know, every, and I can, I can promise you that everybody that started out as a flight attendant back in the seventies, uh, had the idea that it was something they were going to do for like three years or five years before they went on to something else as a career, okay. and, you know? Um, and I applied with a lot of airlines. I was too tall for most. And then Southern Airways hired me in February. Which ones did you, six, which ones did you apply to? Just I, in like Northern, Delta, Eastern. And of course I was too tall for all of them. There were two airlines that did not have a height requirement, Continental and RAV. And, uh, I interviewed you explain, so, sorry for those listeners. Can you explain if that meant you as, uh, you know, granted, I think would be very Dallas based, but Continental, what would that be like for you as a flight attendant? Like where you would be based with those two? Oh, back then, you know, they didn't have much of a presence in New Orleans, but you know, cause Continental was, was, you know, Denver based and LA based and, and, uh, but, uh, I went to one of these group cattle call interviews with Continental. I was like 24 years old, I think. And, and, uh, you know, then I got one of the cards in the mail, you know, thanks, but no thanks. And then I interviewed with Braniff. And, uh, they were very impressed and they said, okay, we're going to fly you to Dallas for your second interview a month from now. And in between the time that I was going to go for my second interview with Braniff, Southern flew me to Atlanta. I went through three interviews with them at a physical and they hired me. And I'm so glad they did. You know, if I'd gone with Braniff, you know, I'd have been out of a job in five years because Braniff went bankrupt in 81. And yet with Southern, you know, I started with Southern Airways in 76. We merged with North Central Airlines in 1979, and that formed Republic Airlines. 1980, Republic bought Hughes Air West. And then in 1986, Northwest bought Republic. So I wound up retiring from Republic. I mean, from Northwest, excuse me. Okay, so I'm following along here. So Uh you were initially probably with Southern, um, New Orleans-oriented, but Memphis-based. Is that correct? Atlanta-based. Atlanta-based. Yeah. Okay. Southern, Southern had five crew bases. We had crew bases in Atlanta, Memphis, New Orleans, uh, Eglin Air Force Base, Florida, which was Fort Walton Beach, and then Miami, Fort Lauderdale. And uh, So you were able to stay based in New Orleans? Well, I didn't want to be stay, stay based in New Orleans. I, I, oh. I, I, I chose Atlanta as my base because that was oh, our headquarters. And it was mm-hmm. fine. We, we, in addition to, you know, flying our scheduled routes, we Southern flew a lot of charters. We had two DC-9s that were constantly in, in, in charter rotation. So, you know, even though the airline only served the Southeast and had a few routes like up to New York and Chicago and Detroit and such, you know, I flew charters to Nassau and Santo Domingo and, and uh, military charters all over the U.S. It was very cool. It was very cool. So tell us, tell us more about what the airline was like back then in terms of like the fleet that it flew. The routes that you would fly on was it like a more right. schedule? Was it out and back? Okay, you're gonna hear my one claim to fame, my my, my historical claim to fame. So Southern Airways, we flew Douglas DC nines. We had you know the Dash tens and the Dash thirties, um, right? For our smaller cities, we flew the Martin four hundred four, and you know all the there were thirteen local service airlines originally in the United States, and and all of them had upgraded their conveyors and or to to jet prop equipment and or or they bought F twenty sevens. Southern bought these Martin four hundred four secondhand from Eastern Airlines in the early sixties, and they kept them, and they wound up being the last piston engine airplanes flying for a certificated carrier in the United States. They lost their FAA certification for operate for a certified certificated carrier. On April 30th, 1978, I flew the very last Martin 404 flight for Southern. It was, so my claim to fame is I was the flight attendant aboard the very last piston engine airliner flight for a certificated carrier in the United <laughs> States. There you go. Uh, yeah, so we flew DC-9s and Martin 404s. The Martins were replaced by swear engine metros, which of course didn't carry a flight attendant. Um but then in 1979, we merged with North Central, which also had a heavy DC-9 fleet, and they had 727s, and uh, same thing, we acquired Hughes Air West, which had a DC-9 fleet, and uh, so we had a lot of DC-9s. I grew up on DC-9s, basically, you know, and then, mm. then uh, Republic, Republic bought some 757s before Northwest bought us, and then with Northwest, of course, I wound up um, working aboard 747s, day 330, day 330. So, well, well, yeah. So I'm, I'm following along 
I have so many questions where I'm just going to keep myself limited. So with the DC-9s, I flew on a few, definitely Northwest ones. Um, I also flew like Aeromexico. I think they had them for a while. And uh, I, I know Airtran did. Venezuela so, had a Martin 404. Did I also flew on the Fokker on American Airlines a couple times and then oh, 727 just only once. And oh, that's one of the Boeing MD-80s. And it'd be nice. So that was like its own family, right? Where like the engines on either side of the plane and then the wings, the, the rear wings are on the uh, vertical stabilizer. There's a different kind of engine uh, in, in tail design that doesn't exist anymore. Isn't that the truth? Yeah, yeah. It was, it was, and it was, you know, it was revolutionary when, when the DC-9 came out. You know, with, well, first it was the Bach 111. The, the, no, I'm sorry. The first was the, was the Caravelle. The Sud Aviation Caravelle was the first that had the, the, the engines in the rear like that. And then, of course, the Bach 111, the DC-9 came along and copied it. And the advertising back then, a lot of airline issues was, you know, we leave the noise behind you, you know, which was... Right. Which was... Yeah. But they're like, to the light, not for the last couple of rows. <laughs> I have been stuck on some noisy, noisy planes. Um, Mad dog in the back. Yeah, like American Airlines, especially if you were like based out of DFW, like I was. And let's say like you were in a Minneapolis or a Chicago... And you wanted to get on an earlier flight, and you were standby, even if you have platinum status. Now I'd be like, ah, hang on, got well, got one seat for you, and it's the middle seat in the back of the bus, and it's for on. Yeah, I know, and I'm like, okay, is it really worth it to me? And oftentimes, yeah, I just put up with it. Um, and with the DC nine too, I, I remember there was a DC nine stretch that was used by Hawaiian, the one and only time I've ever flown Hawaiian Airlines in our island from Lilui to Honolulu. It was the first flight I ever took in the new millennium. And it has uh, that stretch component. Remember the ticket said DC-9 stretch. Yeah, I wasn't sure what that was. So, so you know, they started out with the the, the the Dash 10 series, which was the Dash 14s, Dash 15s. Uh, then they stretched it to the, to the Dash 30 series, which was, which was the traditional stretch DC-9. But then they stretched again to the Dash 50 series. I worked aboard those two. And then when the MD-80 first came out, it, it was first designated DC-9 Super 80. So it was, it was like, it was like the longest stretch version of a DC-9. So, so the family was the DC-9-10s, the DC-9-30s, stretched to the Dash 50, and then the, the MD-80, the Super, the DC-9 Super 80, which we used to fly into Orange County because, of course, they had noise restrictions in Orange County and the MD-80, uh, was able to, to to satisfy the requirements there. So, and by this time, this is you're referring to Northwest, right? You're that was, by this well, and actually, it's Republic. Republic. Okay. So, Republic. because when did when did okay? Can you uh, sorry, please okay. uh, no mention the years of when Southern went to North Central, when North Central was Republic, and when Republic was Northwest? <laughs> okay, all the time. Explore Starlux Airlines' exceptional service and innovation as a new player in North America. Marvel at scenic Sweden with Bratton's Regional. Ponder why Berlin lacks a hometown airline. Get an exclusive peek at a massive private model collection in Panama. Soar over vibrant Tokyo from above. And finish off with an in-depth history of forgotten United States overseas airlines. This and more await you in the December 2023 issue of Airways Magazine. Pick up your copy today at the nearest Barnes & Noble or order online at airwaysmag.com slash shop. Southern Airways. I was started with Southern in 1976. Right. In 1979, Southern, this is right after deregulation. Remember deregulation right. happened at the end of 78. Yes, so yeah. 1979, actually, you know, it was probably one of the smartest moves in the airline industry in the United States at the time. Um, the management of Southern and the management of North Central had been in negotiations to merge because they realized that with deregulation, uh, you know, bigger was better. You know, if you're going to make money, you have to be, you have, you have to have the size to fight the big guys. So Southern and North Central merged in 1979 and that formed Republic Airlines. <laughs> We'll build, we're building your kind of airline. That was, that was the, uh, that was the first slogan, I think. And then, um, a year later, Republic bought Hughes Air West, which was a San Francisco based carrier. 
uh, Hughes Air West itself had been formed from three smaller airlines that had merged together in 1968, Bonanza Airlines, Pacific Airlines, and West Coast Airlines. Okay. Anyway, so now you got Southern, North Central, and Hughes Air West, and they're, they're called Republic Airlines. And we flew until 86, Republic flew until 86, and Northwest bought us. It was a toss-up between who was going to buy. So it was either Delta or Northwest, and Northwest mm. wound up buying. And what was the what was the strategy for that instead of um, because I feel like <clears throat> they would have acquired Delta would have done kind of what it did with Northwest anyway in terms of having like a lot of duplication in Memphis mm-hmm. with Atlanta. Yeah, so it was interesting with Northwest, um, you know, taking on this Memphis hub also, but that's also no longer. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And Memphis was a great hub, you know, but it just, uh, I don't think it produced a heck of a lot of O&D traffic, but, but, um, uh, it's, yeah, that's a, that's a whole nother story. Things go down talking about hubs, you know, about how, how, mm. you know, United, United abandoned Cleveland and Delta, of course, abandoned, uh, Memphis and, and abandoned Narita. Yeah. No, of course, like the disappearance of your Memphis, your Pittsburgh, your St. Louis, uh, and, and now you're seeing, it's quite frankly, like, it's so funny to hear about all these mergers from decades past and it's like, mergers are still going on, right? Like, it, you know, it, now it's, it, now it's your Minneapolis and Detroit and, yeah. and, uh, Philadelphia kind of happening. Right. And it's like, okay, this is interesting. Right. And then you have your spirit, you know, jet blue being blocked. It's, it's interesting. So oh, some things stay the same. Some things repeat themselves. Well, you know, I, was, I was talking earlier about you know there were there were thirteen local services airlines. Was like, right, and you, and you guys have heard of them all. There was Allegheny, Bonanza, Central, Frontier, Lake Central, Mohawk, North Central, Ozark, Pacific, Piedmont, Southern, Trans Texas, and West Coast. None of them exist today. And at the end of the nineteen sixties, there were eleven trunk airlines: American, Braniff, Continental, uh, Delta, Eastern, National, Northwest. Northeast, uh, and look how, look how many of them are gone too. It's like you know, so it's, yeah. I like the natural progression of capitalism that you exactly know, survival of the, of the strongest. Well, you know, and, and yeah, and it, is, merge, it, it is merge until you get down to what you know what we have today, which is basically you know three legacy carriers, and then you got mm-hmm. of course Southwest and JetBlue and Alaska, and, and uh, well, Alaska's a legacy carrier too. But uh, yeah, it just um, I think I, I think it was much more interesting back when we were at a regulated environment with the cab and you know you, you, yeah but that was kind of stable it's like well but. it's so nuts you think about all these flip sides right yes of course airlines were more glamorous back in that period and there was less hassle and you know deregulation kind of helped with like you know not letting them die and also you know maybe arguably you could say there was this added benefit of uh, luxury to that now it's different because like it's much safer there's a lot more innovation yeah. going on. Yeah. And yes, it's coupled with more hassle, more stress, and more needs for security, more needs for regulation, yeah. Yeah. more needs for um, noise impact, and really thinking about like carbon footprint and also thinking about like equality and, and representation in this. And also the pipeline of training pilots and, and ensuring that we don't have pilot and labor shortages in the functions that truly do need, you know, human uh, intervention in, 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 the, in the cabin and the cockpit. Talk about you know the way it's evolving continuously. You know when I when I was a kid growing up in New Orleans, there was we didn't have to, this was pre security. You know I my favorite thing to do on a Saturday when I was a teenager was go out to the right. airport spend the day. You know so many of us would have benefited from meetup. But so then, many of us would have would have appreciated that connection. Back then there was no security. Anybody who went to the airport could walk out of concourse. You know, you just walked out with, you know, you could go to any gatehouse you wanted. No security to go through. And here's, and here's, you know, I, I tell people this, it's like, it's like my, my big brother and I would go out to the airport and, you know, we'd look, you know, we'd go out the concourse and we'd look for a door that was unlocked and we'd, you know, open the door. We'd walk out on the ramp. And just That's go amazing. Out. I took photos of air. I've got photos I can show you guys of airliners. I took, you know, uh, Southern DC-3s, TTA, Convairs, Delta DC-6s. All these airplanes that I took, you know, right out on the ramp, you know, and nobody stopped me. I mean, today, mm. today, if you found like a 14 year old kid wandering around the ramp of an airport, yeah. it would make the evening news. <laughs> no, I've had to really, I've had to really be careful because I was one of these OG people that were taking pictures of food on a digital camera to do trip reports and also write about my journey. And, you know, there is, uh, you know, a lot of scrutiny sometimes when airlines, especially foreign ones, 
would see you taking pictures of the check-in area, the cabin, the security. And I was like, okay, okay, I have to be very discreet with this. And if someone like gets weird about it, I have to delete the photo. Um, I, I loved, for example, being in the ramp in Sao Paulo or in uh, uh, Buenos Aires, you know, boarding a 737 goal aircraft. But then I couldn't, you know, I, they would they would get uh, angry with me on that. So easy. you're correct. And I, I wonder also for you with this uh, merger that you had with Northwest, mm-hmm. where did you then base yourself or where were you based and tell me, tell us about what it was like working for Northwest. Because Northwest is an airline that I actually know is probably the most familiar I had because I was born after the merger with the Republic. So I had most familiarity with, like, as you mentioned, the, the Narita hub, the uh, Memphis, Detroit, Minneapolis hub, okay. the Amsterdam hub, the JB with KLM. I could talk about Northwest Airlines all day and Vinay especially. Um, but what years were you there and what was that like for you? Because you eventually made your way up to Whitebody. It was well, cool. Yeah, it, it was it was it was a big transition because you know so so in Northwest bought Republic in 1986. Of course, uh, you know you had to merge contracts. Pilots had to merge contracts. Flight attendants had to merge contracts, and and uh, seniority lists and all that kind of stuff. Um, there was uh, a hold put on Republic flight attendants flying. They didn't want the Republic flight attendants to fly internationally for a couple of years. Because the Northwest flight attendants considered that their domain, but then after that that uh, expired, you know, the whole system was opened up to us. We could start flying internationally. And I was based in uh, Minneapolis. I I had moved to San Francisco by then and was commuting to Minneapolis. So I commuted to Minneapolis for like seven or eight years. And you were and probably flying seven five seven, seven two sevens, occasional DC tens, maybe seven fours when they had a San Fran transatlantic flight. No, no, there's a lot of me you know, or Jennifer Civics, rather. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. So, so commuting, yeah, yeah. We we, we commute on it was seven twenty sevens, occasionally DC tens and seven fifty sevens. But then out of uh, Minneapolis, I would work either domestic or more international towards towards the end. You know, we because the, the international trips were longer. And you only had to fly a couple of them a month. Yeah. Uh, I remember there was like a six-day Osaka trip that I used to fly. And it was like uh, Minneapolis, L.A., uh, Honolulu, Osaka, back to Honolulu, back to L.A. and Minneapolis. And, and um, yeah, I flew that a lot and worked that a lot. Uh, and then, then, then uh, Northwest opened a crew base in Los Angeles in 19... 19- 89, I believe it was, in 89. It was a flight attendant crew base. It wasn't a pilot crew base, I don't think. Um, and so, you know, my God, I had a, a crew base in my own state then. You know, it's like all I had to do was, you know, fly down the coast to L.A., you know, for my dream. Mm-hmm. Yeah, then, and out of L.A. at the time, we flew Sydney, we flew uh, Osaka, we flew Tokyo, we flew Seoul. Uh, Taxi Dots. Yeah, yeah, was, and they still had a like they still had a Tokyo hub too at that time, right? Like, or, yeah, yeah. So you know, you have Northwest Airlines that's got like a huge number of ASMs that are based overseas, um, mm-hmm. in the Pacific region, right? And then yeah. you know, Delta wasn't able to make you know much inroads into the Pacific in the eighties and nineties. They tried with Portland, um, but you know, it was I, I, for all you know, it may have been a money losing operation. American didn't go very far. United are, you know, inherited something pretty grand from Pan Am. And there was all of this uncertainty in the, you know, 80s and 90s, especially yeah. late 90s with uh, those markets. Uh, and so I would imagine that you had Boeing 747, 200s, 400s, DC 10s. And I have a soft spot for Minneapolis because I lived there for two years from 2013 to 2015. So I was very invested in the Delta Hub. And it was pretty much at that time just. London Heathrow, uh, Paris, Amsterdam, several a day. They tried Rome and didn't stick. And then they had Tokyo. Now it's got, like, I think Seoul and, you know, might have Dublin. I don't know, know, something like that. Yeah, But, I mean, the time you were at Minneapolis, it was definitely a little bit more bopping. Oh, yeah, it was the headquarters of Northwest. was Minneapolis, St. Paul. So, yeah, you know, it was was, uh, good flying out of there, too. Um, And, yeah, yeah, I flew, uh, worked... uh, 400s out of uh mostly out of la i was some 400s to taipei and, and and to sydney and so then continuing on in 1992 northwest opened a crew base in san francisco and it's like oh my god you know now all i have to do is drive to work i don't have to commute anymore 
And out, they opened the bays in San Francisco mainly to crew the flight to Narita every day, which was a 747-200. And then, of course, it evolved into an A330-200. Uh, and then we had a Honolulu flight every day out of here. And so both those flights required, you know, of course, a lot of flight attendants. So with all these mergers and, and, and changes, how are uh, crews adapting to, to these it always, it, you know, it always happens eventually at first, you know, you're, you know, crews are sniffing each other out like, oh, you know, you know, oh, well, you know, you guys never mm. internationally and blah, 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 blah. Right. But you, it, it, it all eventually, you know, works itself out. You become friends with people and, and yeah, it took, it takes a while sometimes, you know, it just, um, uh, the, the Northwest Republic merger was probably the, the most difficult because there was, there was some attitude of we bought you, you know, so, so you right. guys are. Uh, and that kind of set the stage in many ways for like the labor relations at Northwest for the next eternity. Of well, it. as you, as you probably know, the labor relations at Northwest were not. <laughs> they were not good. We're, we're, and it's non-citizen. Delta put all of that to bed when it hurt. Dude, dude, I was a teenager. It's like, you know, it's like, right. I remember those 2005 protests in Minneapolis. Like, people were doing the cool. Yeah. I'm just like, oh my gosh. Yeah, we were flight. We our flight attendant group was was uh, represented by the Teamsters, and then uh, then we became AFA. I think later on, but uh, mm-hmm. um, yeah, it, it 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 was everything was fine until contract negotiation time, and that's always when it was you know it was stressful. It was very stressful because you know that. Uh, still is, still yes. is. Yeah, yeah. But you know, so, oh, yeah. Go for it. Go for it. I, I, I was just say, I think you know, I, I'm so glad I worked for you know, a, union, a unionized carrier um, because now I have uh, you know a defined benefit pension plan and all that kind of stuff. You know, so that uh, and lifetime pay us benefits and and and. Oh, that's so. That's yeah. so. So, uh, tell us what was the service like on the Trans-Pacific flights in Northwest oh my gosh. economy. They had first two at that point, right? They hadn't moved first class. I know that when they... I thought you were going to ask me about first class or business class. We did the... It was called world-class service, and it was fabulous. We did the... Yeah. Because I, I used to work up front a lot. I used to work the galley or in the aisle, either one. But, uh, you know, we so had... grasshoppers? Like we had... No, we had... We had... Um, you know, we had a table... You started with a table-setting cart, and then we had appetizers. And then the first cart, the other first, second cart we set around was the, uh, was the Stola Shania cart, the caviar cart. And we said, oh, wow. We had an ice sculpture on the top of the cart and the, the bottle of chill Stola Shania vodka was in the ice sculpture. And oh, my goodness. The real, wow. What was nice. the, dish of, the dish of caviar and all the accoutrement. We had, you know, you know, toast points and, and egg and, and, and onion and all that kind of stuff. And we did a salad cart. And then, of course, we served the main entree. And then there was a dessert cart. Then the fruit and cheese cart, then the cordial cart. in flight guests. Y'all were like, it, it, you know. The thing is, it was, it, was, it, was, it was a way to keep people entertained for a few hours, you know. It, oh, for it, sure. There, yeah. was no, there was no um, way to pass the time like there is now. And mm-hmm. there was certainly no way to exactly. sleep like there is now. And, right. you know, people could smoke in the cabin at some point too, right? So, you oh, know, yeah. there's people. Oh, like, yeah. that, is, that is a much, it's crazy now that, like, you have people that <clears throat> can't smoke or vape on airlines. Um, that are still having to make like 18 hour trips, uh, you know, and, and, right. and be away from that. It's, um, it's, it's certainly cool that you got to do a lot of those trans back routes before when, like, um, you know, the 747 was retired yeah. and what were your layovers like in Tokyo or in Honolulu? The 20, the years in, in, in Japan, there were 24, usually they were usually 24 hours. You know, you'd get out okay. at like, you know, then you broke the, you'd get out like, Four in the afternoon and work the flight back the next afternoon. Left over, coming back. But uh, sometimes we had to do day layovers. Um, I remember in Osaka one time we had a particularly long layover. It was like either scheduled for two or three days. So you know we'd take the train to Kyoto and go to Nara and all that kind of stuff. You know and just um, nice. Yeah, yeah. It was it was a great career. It really was. It was uh, yeah yeah. And Sydney layovers were fun too. Fun too. That was uh, oh really. Yeah, but I must have operated through Honolulu, right? No, it was not. It was not. It was from LA on the four hundred. Yeah, yeah. What year did that operate? Uh, I I worked at this was like uh, ninety, ninety one, ninety two. Yeah, because there was a hot minute where in the U.S. airlines from the U.S. were allowed to operate to Australia. It wasn't as um, oligopolic as it became between uh, Qantas and United for a long period of time. 
Like American definitely had seven fours down there. So did you ever do like the Pacific Islands? Like, you know, the ones at Northwestern from Tokyo or any in Asia? It was called Flying South. You know, we, we, we called it Flying South from, from, from Narita. And once our whole crew would get to Narita and, you know, we'd have like, depending on if it was a 200 or 400, we'd have, you know, 10 or up to maybe up to 16 flight attendants on a, on a 400. The purser would go south. The purser would continue on the next day on a flight to Singapore or Bangkok or Manila or Shanghai or wherever. And one other person, one other American crew member would go with them. The rest of the crew on those flights were all Asian. They were, you know, we had, we had, right. we had flight attendants based in, in a lot of flight attendants based in Narita in Taipei. Actually, in all of our, our, our uh, Asian destinations, we had flight attendant crew bases. We had Taipei, Bangkok, Singapore. And so the, the majority of the crew on the flights south from Narita to Manila, Singapore, Shanghai, and all the other destinations were nationals from, from that country. Yeah, that it was going. That's crazy to think about. Yeah. Yeah. Crazy. And 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 Trans Pacific, you know, of course, going to Japan, our crews were all American, but we'd always have one interpreter on board with us, a Japanese uh Japanese gal. And and you might remember this most you you probably are old enough to remember this, but in the late eighties they would actually dress in a kimono to greet the passengers coming on board. And then they'd have to go into the to the blue room to change into their uniform after after i've seen sports. pictures i've seen pictures yeah yeah yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. american yeah. used to do that on their flights to hawaii they were dressed in like hawaiian yeah, outfits yeah, yeah. i wonder if that would be really problematic now <laughs> <laughs> i did want to ask yeah. you because since we started and maybe there were few uh male flight attendants so it's yep. interesting how how you know because the whole gender um uh conversation today with you know, how women are more involved in aviation. But at that time, at least in your career, how did that evolve? That, that, man, that's a whole broadcast in itself. So, you know, history-wise, going back, you know, back in the, Ellen Church was the very first female flight attendant ever hired by an airline. That was in 1930 by United Airlines, 1930 or 30, mm-hmm. maybe a little later, 31, 32. Um, but before Ellen Church, men served in the cabins, and then for a lot of airlines, men continued to be the flight attendants. Eastern and Pan Am both exclusively hired men until World War II. And then, of course, in World War II, they were all drafted. Right. Uh, after the war, airlines started hiring women. And, and psychologically in the 50s, the idea was, okay, we want all these men who are scared of flying, these businessmen who are scared of flying, to see that if this— pretty petite little gal can work aboard these airliners every day. Why can't this great big old businessman, you know, why is he afraid of flying? So it was, it was, it was actually psychologically trying to embarrass men to fly. It's like, oh, right. That's right. Get so, <laughs> and that kept up until, you know, and as you put guys know, you know, the rules were pretty harsh for women. They, you know, of course they had weight checks, all that stuff. They hadn't yeah. quit flying when they turned 32 or when they got married or heaven forbid when they got pregnant. And all that changed, 1969, 1970, the EEOC, the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, ruled that, that these, these, you know, these laws were, were discriminatory. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so they had, you know, the airlines had to get rid of, they, they could no longer fire women when they, when they turned 32 or when they got married. And the ruling also stated that if a man can perform the same duty, you can't discriminate against him, you know, and you have to hire, hire him. And it actually happened at a great time for the airlines because what was happening in 1970, all the major airlines were buying their first jumbo jets, DC-10s, L-1011s, 747s. So, of course, right now they had to, like, double their flight attendant corps. And the smaller airlines, like Southern, the one I started with, were all getting into jets. So, you know, now instead of having one flight attendant aboard a Martin 404, they had to have two or three aboard a DC-9. So, so you know, A, first of all, they, they started retaining their own flight attendants a lot, the, the, the gals a lot longer, you know, they could stay on for years. And then they started hiring guys. And, and I think I was probably like the, oh, the 16th or 17th guy hired by Southern, uh, when I, and there were six guys in my training class when, uh, when I started, but, uh, yeah, and it was interesting. It was, it was, it was, like I said, it was a fabulous career and it just, um, you know, it was, uh, we blended very well with, uh, with the rest of the crew and, 
you know, most of the time, most of the time, the pilots are actually very glad to have a guy in the cabin in case something went, you know, somebody got drunk or whatever, you know, you had to right. go with right there. And the gals loved us, you know, we just, it was, uh, it was, um, you know, it was a good working environment. And I also learned a lot about, you know, working in what was basically a women's profession up until that time, you know, how hard women had to fight for everything, you know, for pay raises and for, or, you know, just, uh, yeah, yeah. All, all the benefits they eventually wound up getting. And like I said, Joe, thank goodness I worked for a unionized company because, you know, now I look back at the benefits that I still have carry with me after 32 years. And it's, I'm, I'm glad I have them. So there were unruly passengers at that time. <laughs> not, you know, not, apparently not like today. And of course, today it gets on the news. So, you know, there are copycats. People go out there and, you know, make a scene and think, you know. For sure. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, but I. I can tell you in my in my career I had I, I counted it up one time. I, I had in thirty two years I had six people removed from my flights. And it's usually because they were drunk or they were harassing a flight attendant or whatever. But uh yeah, yeah. And there that was there's some interesting yeah, interesting situations. But Yeah, I'm I'm reminded of Marcus Aurelius. He's like, if you wanna know what's gonna happen in the future, don't read the news. It's history. <laughs> I like that. Yeah. Yeah. I do want to uh, ask you I, is something following your career in the airline industry uh, and with your background in history, right, and political science. Now, I right. think you're you're not pursuing your third act. It's about researching and preserving mm -hmm. history. Yeah. So, if you yeah. could tell us a little bit about what what projects you have right now, so our listeners can can stay tuned to that. So, you know, I, I like I said, I was a history major and and political science major and I, i've always loved history i always loved airline history you know when when you were young when you were a kid back in my era and you wrote away to an airline like you type out your little letters saying you know can you send me you know the time right. back then the the pr departments at the airlines they'd send you this huge manila envelope that had you know uh luggage stickers and postcards and timetables and photos and you know and a, oh. a history of the airline all that kind of stuff and Fortunately, I've been able to save a lot of that stuff from from you know from when I was a kid, from when I was younger. But airline history always fascinated me, and mm -hmm. um, I was so pleased, you know, when when air, both airliners and Airways got started about the same time, the two different mm -hmm. magazines. Uh, Airways started in 1994, their first issue, and of course, as you know, we're celebrating our 30th year next year, uh, yes. April April of 2024. Um, but I submitted my first story to John Wegg, who was the founder of Airways, in 2006. It was a little article about Tag Airlines, which was an airline that flew across Lake Erie between uh, Detroit and Cleveland back in the day. And, uh, and he published it, and then I started writing more stories for him. Uh, and then Enrique, when Enrique bought the magazine in 2014, Enrique Perella, he made me the history editor. And I thought, oh my gosh, wow, this is cool. And so... Um, <laughs> I've continued right. Anyway, long story short, over the years now, I've I've had about a hundred articles published in Airways. So, right, what we're doing is we're taking all of them and putting them into book form, and it's going to be three volumes. And hopefully, volume one will be out. You know, if not by the end of the year in January, we're in the editing process right now. And volume one will co cover subjects A through C, A, B, and C. And then, of course, volume two will come out later next year with, uh, you know, D through N or whatever. And then, and then the final volume. But yeah, I'm pretty excited about it. It's pretty cool, I think, you know, just, and, you know, it just, it's, it's, I want people to know what has happened in the industry before them, because like, as, as, as we were talking about earlier, uh, it's in a, such an evolving industry now. It's like, you know, yeah, from, from back in the day when you had paper tickets and city ticket offices and. Mm -hmm. And that was security at the airport. And, and as you talked about how safety has improved, well, safety, you know, safety improved greatly with the transition from props to jets, from, right. from, from piston engine airplanes to jetliners. That was the first major bump in, 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 in air travel safety. But, um, yeah, I just, you know, I think it's, I think it's very, you know, it's, it's cool to, to kind of, uh, look back at, and see what happened before, you know, you know, where we can, and the talking about the local airlines thing, I mean, I think a lot of people don't realize that we had, you know, 13 airlines that flew pretty big aircraft, DC-3s, Convairs, and Martins, into small cities that 
no longer have air service. Uh, right. So many of them, you know, Tuscaloosa, right. Alabama, Marion, Ohio, places like that, and good airline service at one time. Well, I also, you know, know that there's all these projects like, you know, you have departed flights and then you have departed flights too. And then you have like archive where there's a lot of actually collections of things that like, you know, represent the historical artifacts right. that mm-hmm. I mean, it's also great that we have people like you who are interested in digitizing that for us or compiling it together because it is appreciated by a lot of people. Again, but it's something able, it's something AI can't do for you, right? Yeah, well, you know, you know, everybody's got a purpose. It's like, you know, and I, I just, I just, you know, I, I happen to dig this stuff. I, you know, I love it. I get off on it. So it's, it's, um, you know, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm happy to write about it and happy to, you know, to, to that it's going to be put into, you know, book form. So someone can get yeah. out there and buy a book and just have all the articles and, you know, at their fingertips. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, for sure. I'm going to be yeah. one. Yeah. Um, seriously, because you're, you know, it's like a near encyclopedic knowledge of the airline, the history. Ron, network, what else? Yeah, network planning. I have a little bit of everything. I have a little bit of everything. The one thing I don't really have much of is like pilot knowledge because I'm not like pilot certified yet. So like things like, you know, a lot like Merritt Garter was talking about, uh, that I don't have as much. Right. Here's the deal. You guys have your, like I said earlier, you, you guys have your finger on the pulse of the industry today. You know, you know exactly who's buying what type of aircraft, we what airlines are, exist today. That's not me. That's me. It's like, you know, somebody asked me today, says, oh, well, well I'm safe. I want to fly to, you know, I'm going to fly to Guatemala. Who flies between San Francisco and Guatemala? I'm going. It's interesting what you're saying, because for example, with Marit, um, like one of the heaviest quotes I can give from her is, Every switch and button in the flight deck is uh, tainted in blood. Oh. <laughs> oh. Because that's how uh, technology has evolved in aviation. It's just accident after accident, test after test. And that just really stuck with me. It's like, oh, I, that's kind of good. Yeah, it's true. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, my gosh, yes. You know, it just, it's uh, amazing. <laughs> So, yeah, no, I mean, I think these books are going to be great. I'm looking forward to reading them. Um, Good. And great because they're going to come out, yeah, the year Airways turns 30. 30. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's amazing. I think it's fabulous. It's like, you know, it's, uh, you know, for a print magazine nowadays, you know, and of course I'm on the print side, you guys are on the digital side. Yeah. Um, it's, it's you know, it's it's not easy. You know, it's, it's, it's you know, because... Not a lot of people buy print magazines anymore, and, and the cost of things like paper has gone up so much. And uh, I'm just glad we're still kicking. We're still, you know, we're still well, out there. A lot of these things have also been circulated around the world in places like you know the Middle East and and other countries, right? Like yeah. the 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 nutty thing about it is here in the U.S. you can't find it on the magazine racks, but you might at W. H. Smith in a foreign country. Oh yeah, yeah, um, yeah. There's still like kind of these legacy bureaucracy these we have to deal with it's not just involving the industry itself but it involves the media and publication industry in itself and its constraints like that is part of the narrative here is as a publication it's yeah. yes it's an aviation enthusiast site it is also fundamentally publication yeah yeah no yeah. and uh and a lot of institutions universities uh uh subscribes to us because it is not only the pulse of the industry, but you have the articles like from David, who really, you know, if you don't write it, it's lost. My history articles are always in the back of the back. And it's interesting because, for example, in the United States, I think uh, we've been at Barnes and Nobles for a year or something like that. We weren't yeah. there. So I'm, I'm really happy that new management and Steve Cosgrove and yeah. were able to I was, do this. I was, really, I was in Toronto this summer and I was, there's a bookstore called Indigo in Toronto in, in Canadian bookstore. And, you know, I, I look at their magazine rack and there was airways. It's like, you know, Hey, take a picture, man. Here's, here's, <laughs> here we are on the, on the, on the bookshelf in, um, in, uh, in Toronto. And, you know, and back in the earlier days, you know, I remember seeing us on the bookshelves and, Brussels and you know other places around the world too. So, yeah, hopefully we're back to that. Yeah, yeah, hope so. All right, any other questions you might have for David, Ronald? I'm good on my side. This has been such a fun conversation, and I'm really and appreciate it. But we take time to come speak with us. Well, for thank sure. you for inviting me. I appreciate it, man. It's like it's it's been good. It's been fun. 
Yeah. All right. Yeah, no, thank you for, for taking the time to be with us. Yeah. And, and whenever we get together in person, you know, we'll sit down and, uh, you know. For sure. I'm down for that. Yeah. And I'll tell you the real stories from. from, from <laughs> oh, yeah. Off the record. <laughs> Perfect. So, well, thank you, everyone, for listening to us. Remember that you can subscribe to our podcast at airwaysmagazine.substat.com. Thank you very much, David, for your time. Thank you.